All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Welcome back, everybody, to the eighth episode of our podcast here. It is early May, and we are still doing the social distancing thing, but I think we've upgraded our technology significantly since last time, aren't we? Sure have. You sound great, Rory. How are you feeling today? You sound great as well. I'm feeling great. I feel like we're kind of in the, I just wrote this in one of our updates. I feel like we're almost sort of in the horse latitudes of the pandemic response at this point where PJM has done a really good job of responding quickly. And as this continues on, there's just no updates. Uh, we're just sort of business as new usual. Yeah. When I saw that reference to uh, horse latitudes and one of the things you put out, I was wondering if that was a reference to your Lebanon in county Pennsylvania roots. <laughs> uh, no, I believe we are we are slightly north of the horse latitudes in, in Lebanon County. That was not a direct reference to the slow and easy life that goes on in Lebanon County. Well, we've got a pretty packed agenda. We wanted to, it's been a while since you and I just talked. We've had great guests over the past couple of months that have come in and given us a lot of new insights on what they're doing responding to the pandemic, but you and I have not reconvened to kind of discuss where we are and what's going on. Absolutely. I know we were fortunate to have Chairman Stanek on as well as former for Commissioner Phil Moeller. They, as always, provided terrific insights and thoughts and couldn't have been more timely with them, just given where we were with the coronavirus and their efforts in the state of Maryland, as well as in the case of Phil Moeller at EEI. And so much is going on on so many different levels related to this COVID change of affairs, if you will. And we're seeing it at all levels. And we want to talk a little bit about COVID today. We also have seen pretty significant activity from FERC. They've taken some very bold steps in certain areas. And FERC is certainly open for business, putting out orders, petitions to courts and what have you. And it's been an exciting time. So yeah, lots to talk about and uh, look forward to getting into it. I want to go off script just a second because it reminded me, you mentioned Phil. Right after we had that interview, did you see that new Michael Moore documentary that came out? Or I guess he presented it. He was the executive producer, the uh, Planet of the humans? Have you heard of oh, that? Oh, no. Was, was okay. there about canned salmon on there? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's generally about the idea that the renewable industry has been oversold to the public and that the main advocates of this are becoming rich off of it. And it mentions Bill McKibben and Al Gore and takes shots at a bunch of other folks and talks about biomass. Anyway, they do a really little snippet of some interview with Phil. It seems like it was in the hallways at FERC or something like that. And I just, you know, I'm watching this thing and I'm like, hey, I know that guy. I almost wish we had done the interview a little bit later so we could have brought that up and see if he had seen it or remembered that interview where it happened. It just sort of seemed like something that came out of nowhere. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder if Phil's going to change his bio to include co-star on Michael Moore feature film. Yeah, yeah, about that. He's a featured documentary subject. <laughs> that could be interesting. Yeah. Anyway, on the pandemic front, for us who've been 
in the middle of PJM's updates for a while now. PJM has hit its stride. There's really no new news on it, but I feel a lot of that came from actions they took in previous weeks. As you might have heard, Glenn, they took their dispatch center simulator and they turned that into an actual working dispatch center. So now they've got three redundant operating centers there. And as I know you know, they have sequestered some of their operators, kept everybody home, and the campus is now closed until at least June 4th. So they've really jumped on this to follow the state's lead. Hats off to the men and women at PJM for the way they're managing themselves through this pandemic. And in particular, hats off to the operators at PJM. I mean, they have been sequestered on site. They are not seeing their families. They are sleeping on site. You know, they've moved in, I think, gym equipment so they could at least work out. They're working 12-hour shifts. And if any of you have ever been to the PJM bunker, it's several stories underground, no windows. It's a tough work environment to begin with because you're under heavy stress trying to manage the grid and all the challenges associated with that. So we talk a lot about the unsung heroes that are out there in the world right now. And there are so many, you know, whether it's the first responders or the men and women in the healthcare profession who are providing valuable skills and services that are necessary to get those who are suffering through this. But hats off again to the men and women at PJM who are sacrificing so much. So not only the lights and TVs and internet can stay on in our homes, but also so the hospitals can remain powered and police stations and the fire stations and the other things we depend on. They probably won't get the recognition they deserve throughout this process, but there's a tremendous amount of sacrifice going on out of PJM. And then you also mentioned it too, Rory, PJM, the non-operators are not on site and PJM is a pretty big operation, several hundred employees. They're not meeting together in person. They're doing their best to conduct the stakeholder process virtually. They're trying the best to manage an organization virtually. And it's challenging for those who've been in leadership positions, working through the operational and administrative challenges associated with something like this are enormous. And all the while, you're worried about the safety of your employees and want to make sure that they remain healthy through this all. So a lot of great work going on at PJM and they deserve more recognition to get them, but at least at least they're getting the recognition they deserve here on the GT Power. <laughs> Very true. As that's always very true. Uh, yeah, and let's we, also talk about, the, if we could, the state regulators and the federal regulators through this all, because they're also being called upon. And we touched on this with Chairman Stanek and, and Phil Moeller for a little bit. But just a special shout out to those folks who are also not only going through the challenge of operating remotely and running an organization remotely, and there's special challenges associated when you're in the public sector that they're working through, but they're also still having their public meetings and open meetings. They're also still putting out orders. FERC is very much open for business. Kudos to Chairman Chatterjee. He provided some appropriate leaf when the pandemic was escalating and we were just all getting used to this new normal. But FERC is pushing out orders. They're having their open meetings. They're participating in court sessions virtually. So that's happening at FERC and it's also happening at the state levels with the PUCs and the PSCs and the VPUs all conducting business. So we're all adjusting a new normal, but our regulatory agencies are very much open for business. And that's critical right now because just as the these services are essential, so are the regulatory protections and regulatory oversights commissions bring to the table. So some good work being done there as well these days. Well, as you mentioned there, Glenn, there's a lot going on beyond the pandemic response. FERC and PJM very much remain open for business. Let's talk about what else is pretty hot 
right now in the stakeholder process and FERC stockets and all over the energy sector. What do you got top of mind right now? Why don't we start with PJM's new CEO? Five months on the job now. When he took the job, he certainly didn't anticipate this challenge being thrown at him. And he probably had terrific plans for what he was going to do as CEO. And as soon as coronavirus began to impact PJM, I'm sure a lot of those plans got sidetracked, as is appropriately so. And just appreciation for the internal challenges of dealing with something like this. PJM, and he said this publicly, they began operating two control centers and stood up a third control center, took precautions necessary to keep their employees safe in their control rooms operating. The administrative responsibilities associated with this have been significant. It looks like he's getting out more and more. He's certainly talked to the uh, members committee where he detailed his vision for the organization, talking about his priorities of reliability, stakeholder involvement in developing market rules and enhancing the employee experience at PJM and nurturing PJM employees. We've heard those before in many places. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how he further explains and expands upon those priorities and how those priorities translate into action actual actions. He's certainly going to be called upon, particularly in regard to priority number two, working with stakeholders to develop rules, to make some decisions, make some calls, manage that process in a way that stakeholders feel a part of it, yet also preserving the benefits of markets. And the benefits of markets are enormous. We've talked about that numerous times on this podcast. PJ has a mission and it's going to be very telling how his leadership style translates into those market rules that are going to continue to deliver on the value proposition. Because of this COVID thing, we're still kind of in the learning phase, but you got to like what you've seen in terms of the response to this COVID epidemic and how PJM has responded and how he as a leader has worked the organization through that. What did you think? From your background as chairman of the PAPUC, I'm sure you had to feel a little bit for him being only five months on the job here and already being tasked with PJM's annual meeting, which is their biggest event of the year. It's a multi-day affair. Everyone who's anyone in PJM's sphere shows up. He had to preside over the first one that was entirely socially distanced and all online, all conference call only. And there were several major events that we'll talk about in a little bit that all had to be done by a conference call, which made it difficult. I would agree. I think a lot of the points that he made, and I'm not sure if this was a factor in his three priorities, but they're all points that I know I heard from stakeholders as priorities for them during the search for a new CEO before they had announced who it was. They mentioned to the board and they mentioned to pretty much anyone in the executive staff who was listening, a lot of those things that whoever the new person was needed to be able to engage with stakeholders. Everyone had mentioned previous PJM CEO, Terry Boston, was very good with his staff, made everybody feel like they were a part of the process, was very good at developing individual So all of the things that he mentioned as priorities seem to come, whether or not this is true, from a script of what people were hoping they were going to hear. So he definitely hit on some points that I think made a lot of people happy. So as I mentioned, the annual meeting is usually PJM's biggest event each year, and they reserve that for the opportunity to make the biggest statements and impacts. And they did that again this year, as we heard 
Sue Riley, who was on the board and then took over as the interim CEO and president before Manu was hired, then returned to the board, has retired now at the end of the operating year. And also Steve Hurling, who was executive vice president of planning and from what I understand has been at PJM since the primordial years there and helped with the development of the RTEP that is now such a major foundational piece of what goes on in the planning department. So usually these events would have been in person and there would have been a nice farewell for them. Instead, we did it all by phone. It seemed that there was a little bit missing, but you know, that's the best that could go on. And they did announce, I would mention that they invited both of them back for a proper send off when everybody is able to meet again. But both of them were very impactful and have helped in crafting PJM's position and direction forward for many years. Sue Riley has been a bedrock on the PJM board for a while. As you mentioned, she stepped up and was an interim CEO running the organization on a day-to-day basis. But Sue has always been an engaged board member. I think stakeholders always enjoyed her ability and her interest in talking to and hearing input from stakeholders. She was always accessible. I got to know her pretty well at the Nehru and Macruff meetings where she was always actively engaged in, in good conversations in the hallway. And her vision and wisdom will certainly be missed on the board. And she just had a terrific run and should be really thanked for her service. And, you know, in regard to Steve Hurling, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. I'll never forget. I think my first visit to PJM, it would have been 1997 or eight, I want to say. And I went down there and I got a tour. Andy Ott was on the tour. Steve Hurling was on the tour. Joe Bowering. I left thinking, man, that is one heck of a basketball team they got down there. Andy, Joe, Steve, and we're all very, very tall. It was something else. Steve always, he was the guy who understood transmission planning. PJM is transmission planning. That's one of their core missions. And he's been the bedrock in that spot for decades. And somebody who brings a ton of institutional knowledge, another tough person to replace. But PJM will go on. But Steve Hurling, again, can leave with his head held high that he did some great work while he was at PJM. You know, we look forward to moving forward. A lot of changes at PJM. I mean, I think big picture wise, you look at PJM and what it is now compared to what it is two years ago. Some folks who are still there, but for the most part, you have a new leadership team. You have a new board members coming in. There's a lot of change going on and that's always uncomfortable at first. We remain optimistic in PJM as an organization and its vision. And there's a lot of folks that have stayed in the organization and on the board that'll provide some of that stability. But yeah, we've seen a lot of changes. Hopefully there are changes for the better and time will tell. As you mentioned there, Glenn, a lot of change going on. The replacement for Sue was elected by the members. Her name is Margot Lobel, I believe is how it's pronounced. Yeah, I made a comment just a bit on the process by which PJM selects board members. There is a nominating committee that's composed of PJM members that reviews applications and candidacies that then recommends board candidates to the full membership and is then voted on by the full membership. So there is a process in place to bet these candidates The only thing I would mention is the press release focused a lot on her financial background and risk mitigation history. And it's another example, I think, of bigger issues that caused the leadership shakeup in the first place being addressed as we go on. It's almost like a football team where in the last season, they had glaring holes in the defense of the offense and they go into the offseason and they find replacements specifically for those. As a fan of the Washington Redskins, when you actually do fill a hole every once in a while and make the team a little better. It gives you a sense of stability. You start to feel a little bit better about the direction you're going.
Well, if you're feeling pretty good about the direction the Redskins are going, I'm a little nervous for <laughs> you. God bless you. Keep hope alive. You couldn't go any further down, so. <laughs> oh, that's true. Fair enough. Well, one of the other things that was brought up at the annual meeting that is not usual for the yearly event is the financial impacts that the pandemic might have. PJMs put a little analysis into what they think the impact of revenues might be from the reduction load and the other impacts from the pandemic. And the general upshot there was, I think we learned two things. One, how essential load is for PJM's revenues, how much they depend on load projections for the annual revenues. And number two, that those load projections this year are going to be, at least for the first quarter, significantly lower. It looks like they said roughly seven and a half percent for the first quarter. And because the uncertainty remains, that could continue throughout the year. And they are concerned that there could be up to, I believe, 14% reduction in load for the entire year if this continues. So there's a significant potential impact here. And staff have already begun scrambling to find ways to reduce costs and to otherwise prepare for significantly less revenue than they were otherwise expecting. The economic impacts of this COVID situation situation, not only on PJM, but the power sector is not going to be spared. That's for sure. PJM is not going to be spared either. Demand, as you said, is way down compared to what we would normally experience this time of year. And that's not a surprise. Commercial operations are largely shut down. Auto manufacturing is shut down. Schools, colleges, universities, they're all shut down and not consuming electricity at their normal levels. So as a result, we've seen some pretty interesting market impacts. For example, we learned this week that March was the lowest price hour month that PJM's ever seen. And April's poised to get potentially even lower. And that's partly driven by weather, but it's also driven by lower demand. In March of this year, we saw coal production at its lowest levels in the history of PJM. We're seeing power prices that are probably 30% off of what you would expect this time of year. You log on to the PJM website and prices are generally under $20 everywhere. And that's unusual. I've even seen prices well below $10 on the website. So yeah, and that's all going to translate into impacts on general generation owners, as well as transmission owners that aren't seeing the volumes that they're used to, similar distribution owners. The difference is, at least with utilities, and we're seeing reports of this already, they can track their losses and then go into the commission and look for recovery of those costs. In the case of merchant generators, they obviously don't have that ability. And any losses they experience are going to hit their bottom line directly. They don't have the ability to turn to a rate base and seek recovery of those expenses. So as we move forward here, there's certainly going to be some shakeout. As you mentioned, we've seen recessions hit the power sector before, and there's certainly no doubt we're in one right now. Recessions will impact long-term power demand, and many times that load does not come back. Is this one a little bit different maybe than past recessions? time will tell. And one of the interesting stories, I think this time next year will be how much did demand rebound? And chances are, it's not going to be back to the levels that were originally anticipated. Then there's going to be consequences for the market. And I think we will see units that might have been economic to date no longer be economic. I think we'll continue to see some penetration of new resources, but perhaps that slows down. Does demand response become as attractive an opportunity for consumers as it used to be because power prices are really low? 
consumers are seeing prices that are unbelievably low right now, particularly those industrial customers that have the benefit of taking a lot of power at wholesale prices, they're going to see tremendous reductions in their uh, electricity bills, just like the average customer is seeing tremendous reductions in the price they pay at the pumps for gasoline. That economic benefit will flow back to consumers as well. So yeah, fascinating times ahead. And just as we think about reopening, if I have one thing, one of the things that's going to be interesting to watch is how the commercial office buildings either open or don't open. We're in May right now as we enter the summer months and those air conditioning loads pick up. Those commercial office buildings are not up and using air conditioning. That'll leave a significant dent in electricity demand. If they are up and running, demand will obviously increase. But if they're not, you can certainly envision a summer which power prices remain very, very low. Good for consumers tough for suppliers. That's a really interesting topic. And I want to jump on that in a second, but let me correct myself real fast. I looked it up. The March load was reduced 6.6% below budget. And the April load is projecting 7.5% below budget. So PJM's forecast for the rest of the year, they have a couple of scenarios. One that would be a 14% reduction in actual terawatt hours through May. 14% through August or 14% through the entirety of the year. And then that all flowed into the differences in revenue. We'll also clarify that at no point did PJM suggest that they would be revenue negative. They still anticipate through all of their actions that they will have a surplus, small potentially, but a surplus at the end of the year. To your point about long-term impacts, the long-term forecast, they are looking at a 1% reduction and they clarified that the greatest reduction from the 2009 recession was 3% in the forecast. So some of this is unprecedented. Some of it is not. One thing I wanted to go back, you were talking about low prices right now. And one of the things that Manu mentioned in his list of sort of priorities and things that are changing is the proliferation of plug-in electric vehicles with low prices like this. Do you anticipate more of an electrification of everything? Power prices and the cost of electricity. I mean, it already was declining for consumers and it already was improving as just more efficient generation is coming on board and replacing older, less efficient units. That's been well documented, well discussed. And we've seen a pretty steady and dramatic decrease in electricity prices, big picture wise. Obviously, this COVID situation is just accelerating that. And we have a surplus situation. And when supply is high and demand is low, that means prices go down. And what that should do is incent folks to use more electricity vis-a-vis -vis other fuel sources, right? Ironically, all the other fuel sources are down too, whether you look at oil or natural gas or what have you. So energy is affordable right now by historic standards. So yes, I mean, could that mean a move towards more electrification? Yes. But also, if you think about it, it's going to cost a lot less to fill up a tank of gas. And it looks like those oil prices could stay low for a while. But I think the move is going to happen either way. You know, you mentioned that the commercial large-scale air conditioning load will go down. But won't that also correlate with an increase in residential air conditioning that is less efficient? So what do you think the balance net is going to be there? In terms of residential air conditioning load replacing 
commercial industrial load. I don't see that happen. Some houses will turn down their air conditioning when they go to the office, but the vast majority of homes are being cooled in the summer as well as the offices. So those commercial buildings, these big systems, they're cooling a lot. And keep in mind, it's also hotels, it's restaurants, it's boarding facilities, it's convention halls. All those things can use an awful lot of electricity. And, you know, think about like the Philadelphia Convention Center. And if there's not conventions going on in the Philadelphia Convention Center in July, which is normally a pretty good time for conventions, that's going to have a big impact on demand. Heck, if they're not playing baseball in South Philly at Citizens Bank Park, you know, they don't have to turn on those lights. All those things are going to have an impact. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. All of the coincident things that are happening at the exact same time will be reduced. So overall, there's just going to be less going on. Good points there, Glenn. It wouldn't be a GT Power Hour if we didn't talk about Moper, right? Knew that was coming. Yeah, there's been some more wrinkles, and I'm sure our listeners are tuning keen into the wrinkles. But in April, FERC came out with a rehearing order that largely held intact the December 19th order that instituted and expanded the MOPR to include all resources. Without getting in all the back and forth and where we stand, and I should say the appellate process has already started. That's kind of one of the big takeaways from the April rehearing order is that now most of the order is subject to judicial review. And we've already seen parties take their petitions to the appellate courts. Petitions were filed both in the Seventh Circuit and the D.C. Circuit. The Seventh Circuit was selected as the venue where it was chosen, and Seventh Circuit is the Midwestern part of the country, mostly Illinois. Our arguments probably will be in Chicago on this one. I do want to talk about one issue that's gotten a lot of attention at not only the PJM level, but at state level, and that is how did the false service auctions and the MOPR interrelate? And just by way of background, the false service auctions are a tool that are used in states that have restructured the electricity market to acquire power for those consumers that elect not to shop with a competitive retail supplier. So if I'm a consumer in, let's say, the state of, let's say, New Jersey, I have a choice. I can either go buy from a competitive retail supplier, and you can pick from a menu of suppliers providing competitive retail service, or I could elect to not choose an alternative supplier and just take whatever the utility can procure on my behalf. That's called the default service auction process. And states have different ways about going about acquiring that default service. Most of them have an auction or bid-based approach where they go out and solicit bids from suppliers and those suppliers compete to provide that default power at the lowest price. And it's competitive auction and the lowest price gets chosen. And those are the ones that eventually have to serve those consumers that don't shop for power. It's a tool that's been used effectively for decades. It's really kind of in many respects, the bedrock on which a lot of these state restructuring efforts rest. What FERC did in the April 19th order, it was paragraph 386. I think a lot of us have read it dozens and dozens of times. They said that to the extent that those state default procurement options fall within the definition of FERC's definition of subsidy, they will be subject to MOPR. And the fact that it's maybe an indirect payment to a generator still would render that a subsidized resource. And to the extent that states are using their default procurement programs to provide a revenue stream to resources, that should be considered a subsidy and subject to the MOPR. I glossed over a lot of details there, 
but that's generally the issue that has arisen and led to a pretty significant amount of stakeholder debate. My personal opinion is this is an issue that's going to need to be addressed because the reality is when a generator competes in a PJM capacity auction, they do that three years in advance of a delivery year. So sitting here in 2020, if we have an auction in 2020, under normal circumstances, I would be participating in the PJM capacity auction to serve load in 2023. However, the state procurement auctions usually happen a year to sometimes six months in advance of the delivery year. So most times when I participate in that auction, I do not know if I will be part of a state default procurement program. Also, many times generators don't participate in those state default procurement programs. Usually it's marketers, aggregators, what have you. So you usually don't see XYZ generation facility participating in the BJS auction. Usually it's, like I said, aggregators. It can be folks who own generation and what have you, but it creates a disconnect, if you will, or an implementation challenge for both PJM as well as the suppliers of capacity, how they're actually going to comply with this first order. So I think it's going to be an issue that is going to get talked about a lot over the next couple of weeks at PJM. At some point, whether it's through a request or a hearing or PJM addresses it through the compliance process as PJM is proposing to do. At some point, I think FERC is going to need to clean up this language because the end result that you don't want is a generator for the sake of just being safe, declares itself subsidized, participates in the auction, and then that just creates a lot of administrative burden, a lot of paperwork, a lot of things that you need to work through that you may not necessarily need to. There's probably a better solution out there. I think FERC will probably sharpen its pencil and get something in place that just appears a little bit more workable than it currently is. And I should say, we talked about this with Phil Muller, that's not unusual. Sometimes these FERC orders just need to be more carefully honed, especially on issues like this, where it wasn't a main feature of the case. It wasn't really discussed or briefed at length. FERC has expressed a concern that they don't want these state default procurement auctions to be used as a tool to undermine the capacity markets that they're concerned about. But by the same token, there needs to probably be a little bit more workable construct so that not only states can have confidence in these processes, but generators or any capacity suppliers that participate in the PJM-based residual auctions have confidence that they know the rules by which they have to operate. On a fundamental level, the theory of it, Joe Bowering, the IMM, has mentioned that he still considers this a consistent and logical order. Do you agree that the definition that this remains uh, logical and consistent with the definition that, that FERC has outlined for what a subsidy is and how they will handle them. If you think about the purpose of the minimum offer price rule and what FERC is looking to address, they're concerned about subsidies that prevent uneconomic generation that exists from retiring. They're also concerned about uneconomic generation that is new entering the market because they have a subsidy. And if you think about those two sort of bookends, yeah, you could envision scenarios by which state default procurement programs could be pools to undermine FERC's goals. But by the same token, I think there's a balance on the other side, and that is these state default procurement options are competitive processes. As long as those processes are fair, fuel neutral, and allow for competition among those suppliers who need to serve the load at the lowest price, you know, consumers win from that scenario. And as long as there's not subsidization flowing through those programs to specific resources, I think FERC can accomplish many of its goals here. So I think FERC is rightly concerned that there could be some activity 
in the default procurement programs that undermines their goals. I'm concerned that the language that's out there in paragraph 386 is too broad. It's creating confusion. And there's a lot of folks saying, how are we going to make this work? That needs to be cleaned up. I think it will be cleaned up. And like I said, I have every confidence that FERC will recognize that they need to provide additional guidance on this. I don't think FERC is intending that every unit in PJM go through the MOPR process. I don't think that's their intent. But I think the concern is that if it stays as written, that could be the end result. The other part of the rehearing order, I know we don't want to go into too much detail, but we rarely talk about public power on this podcast, and this might be a good opportunity to do that. It reiterates the point that it is considering public power self-supply as a subsidy. That is also a concern. It is, and those folks are already going to court. So yeah. That certainly will be addressed there. I don't recall, I haven't heard PJM saying anything specifically they're doing on that on compliance. I know Public Power spoke up and has reiterated some of the concerns that they have had. It's been pretty clear. As you said, that's gone to litigation, and I think that's probably where that will have to end up. Well, you know more about what's going on here than I do, Glenn, but I do know that there is a carbon pricing technical conference coming up at FERC, and I don't want to tease this too much, but we may discuss this more in future episodes. What have you been hearing about that? Is FERC planning on moving forward with it? Well, yeah, and just to be clear, there's nothing planned yet. What was filed in mid-April was a petition at FERC to encourage FERC to use its convening authority to start a conversation about carbon pricing in the regional markets. It was a very diverse coalition that supported it. Full disclosure, I signed it on behalf of P3, but we were on there with AWEA, EPSA, R Street, several other individual market participants. So it was a broad group of folks saying, we think this is a good idea. It since has generated a lot of other support. The Maryland Public Service Mission filed comments in support, the PJM Market Monitor filed in support. So it's just a technical conference. It's just a conversation. There's no prescribed outcome in terms of a market rule or anything to come out of it. It's just starting off a conversation at FERC about what carbon pricing could look like at the regional level. I think there's a recognition that particularly in PJM, as you have all these different jurisdictions pursuing different means of achieving their carbon goals, there's probably a better way to do it. And exploring some of the regional options within the RTO is a conversation candidly that we should have. And I think that's hopefully what FERC will do. I think the commissioners are digesting it right now. Again, we might hear more about this in the coming weeks, but it seems to me an opportunity to at least have a conversation and maybe some good ideas come out of it. Think about the MOPR, sorry with the complaint, but certainly there were technical conferences, a part of the deliberations on how to handle state public policies in the regional markets. Having one specifically focused on carbon, the time seems right for it. And so far, it seems like the reception has been pretty warm. And when you look at, I think really the value in this petition is in the coalition. When you think about the diverse set of interests that are supporting that, it should get the commission's attention. And I should have mentioned as well that the industrial consumers supporting it as well. So broad coalition, hopefully it'll be a good, interesting conversation. And just to clarify, this is not in any way an extension or not intended to be an extension of the carbon pricing task force going on at PJM. They're not intertwined in any way. No, yeah, these no, are, these no. are separate efforts. Separate efforts. I think it's reasonable to anticipate that PJM and perhaps the PJM market monitor will participate in the technical conference and certainly all the states in PJM will have an opportunity to participate 
participate as well as the stakeholders. Uh, and it's not just limited to PJM, I should say. It's all the regional markets. So PJM's effort was actually, it's a little bit of a prequel to this because what they are intending to do is to create a framework that could accommodate a carbon price. So they are almost kind of working ahead of what may or may not come eventually out of the technical conference to see if that can work within PJM's market. So they're, they're sort of hand in glove a little bit, but definitely separate. Well, yep. Glenn, we've even skipped over topics. There's a lot that we could be discussing, but as usual, we are attempting to limit our use of your time to an actual GT power hour. And this month, it's looking like it could be 45 minutes. So you're going to get 15 minutes back. Hopefully it was all interesting information. But before we end, we do want to do our usual two minutes of advice. So Glenn, what do you got this month? My advice is to the residential electricity consumers in the PJM footprint who are in states where you can shop for electricity power. As I mentioned earlier, power prices are really down and chances are that there's some really good deals out there to be had. I look at the difference between your default rates that you're getting if you don't choose an electric supplier and what's out there and available in the marketplace. There's some bargains to be had, folks. So go ahead. If you're in Pennsylvania, where I am, log on to PAPowerSwitch.com. You'll see some really terrifically priced options right now. Take advantage of the fact that electricity prices are down and save yourself some money because you know, certainly in this situation where the economy is going to be struggling, every little bit's going to help around the house and you can save a few dollars a month on your electricity bill right now. Go ahead and do it. Obviously, read your offers very carefully. Make sure you're getting into an arrangement that you're comfortable with, but go ahead. You have the ability to shop. There are deals out there to be had because of this situation we're in. Go ahead and take advantage of it. So that's my advice to the residential consumers of the PJM footprint in choice states. There's a mouthful for you. No, that's a great recommendation. Great advice. And I can say on a personal level, the gentleman who taught me how to play the bagpipes, we got into the conversation about electricity prices years ago. And every three years or so, whenever his contract is up, I get a call about six months ahead of time saying, hey, can you take me through the process? What should I be doing? So we walk through for about 45 minutes. We pick him another long term firm contract and he is good to go for the next few years and I felt very proud to help him search through that website it can be a little overwhelming if you don't know what you're doing there but it certainly is worth it well my two minutes I am going to go with one that I have been meaning to do for a while now from my background as a reporter these are people that I term advocate journalists you know who you are and if you are the audience or if you've read someone who is like this you know who they are too they think are doing good, trying to spread a message and influence people. But I believe it should have been taught in J school as I was. It's not your job. If you want to influence people and spread a message, go do PR. Journalism is about unbiased distribution of the facts, all of them without embellishment or framing. Leave your audience to create the narrative. We've all heard this term fake news and it's been spreading like its own kind of virus and it's become an issue causing all kinds of concerns with the foundation of journalism, which I think is a really important thing for our country and democracies in general. And part of the issue that there is it was self-inflicted by people who have acted in this way. These advocate journalists, get off your soapbox, just report the news, and let's get back to just reporting the facts. 
So that's my two minutes. Outstanding. Step off my soapbox. I'll say goodbye to our listeners. Thanks for listening, everybody. Absolutely. And Glenn, we've gotten away from this, but I want to bring it back. Our sign off, as it has always been, is be excellent to each other. So we will see you again next time. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.